At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Good morning. Glad to be here. My name is Joel Tompkinson. I do bring greetings from the Farmington Hills campus just up the road, and I am very grateful for the partnership that we have with Plymouth. We're kind of sister, mother, daughter. There's, there's time for a, another time for a whole story. Maybe you know some of it of how you all came to be. Uh, through some of the pastors who were at Farmington Hills, and they connected with Jeremy some years ago. So I am actually blessed to be here for the first time on a Sunday. I've been in your building, but never been here for, to preach before. And so I bring greetings from my campus to yours, and I'm happy to step in uh, so that Jeremy can be on, on vacation. And we talked earlier this week. He was out west and enjoying... Um, I mean, he loves adventure, doesn't he? He just climbed Mount Whitney and posted that awesome picture, and he loves to climb. I, I love uh, to be on mountains as well. I guess I got the, the bald and mountain memo. That's what Woodside looks for in pastors, maybe? Um, I'm still jealous he got to go to Yosemite last summer. I haven't been there yet. So he's, he's had some epic adventures. I'm so happy for him and his family. And from time to time in life, we get to experience some pretty epic or what you could say is awesome things, right? What would it be for you? If you look back on your life, you say, man, this was awesome that I got to experience this or that. For me, uh, one of those things was this past March. My wife and I were in Cape Town, South Africa, our first time on the African continent, visiting some friends who are missionaries and spending a couple weeks to encourage them and learn and see their ministry firsthand. And one of my bucket list things was to take a helicopter ride, but not like a life flight, but like a, a real, like a real helicopter tour. And so when we were in Cape Town, if you know anything about Cape Town, there's a mountain called Table Mountain that's flat. It's kind of where they get the inspiration from the Lion King. There's this flat mountain and the whole city surrounds it. And you've got the Atlantic Ocean. And some people would say that Cape Town is where the Indian and the Atlantic Oceans meet right there at the at the tip of Africa. And so we got to take this amazing helicopter tour for 25 minutes and see the city and see the, the mountain. And I got my bucket list thing. And I would say it was awesome. Being up in the air was awesome to see, have a bird's eye view. I would also say that being there for the birth of my children was an awesome experience that has stuck with me. In ministry, I've had some really amazing things to, to lead people to Christ after I've preached. Anytime I'm in the waters of baptism, to take that journey with people is an awesome thing. And I don't mean like, oh, awesome. That's like, the lions are awesome this year. Not, not that kind of awesome, but just, wow, God, you're up to something. And that's what our text is today. God, you're up to something. 
Jesus, you are awesome. I wonder, do you see Jesus that way? Do you see Jesus and his work and his kingdom as awesome? We've been on a journey. If you've been here at any one of our Woodside campuses, so that's one of the beauties as we walk through the same sermon series together across all our different locations. And so we've been preaching through Mark 3, 4, 5, and we're learning about the kingdom of God. What is it? How do we understand it? How do we participate in it? How does it grow? And we're actually privy to a little bit of a training session between Jesus and his disciples. Do you remember the parables? He speaks in these, in these stories that sometimes can be a little hard to explain. He speaks that way to the crowds. But then when he's privately with his disciples, he says, okay, now let me tell you what this is about. So he's explaining to his disciples some things. His disciples are accompanying him on this itinerant ministry because they don't know this yet. He's about to leave them and say, okay, now you do it. You carry on the work for me. They don't know yet. We know because we've got the New Testament to see what happens. And here we are in Plymouth, Michigan in 2023. And the work continues. The kingdom of God continues. And so he has been equipping and training his disciples to know about the kingdom. Now, last week, if you were here or if you know Mark 4 at all, it's this amazing, epic story, true story of how Jesus has authority over the natural world. He calms the sea. He calms the waves. And his disciples were afraid. Well, of course they're afraid because they're in, they're in a boat and, and it seems like they might, the waves are coming over. So there's some fear of their dire circumstances, despite the fact that they were with Jesus and they had seen him do some amazing things. They still feared, but their fear was actually transformed into a different kind of fear a reverent, godly fear. They worshiped him. Do you remember the, the line that they asked at the very end of chapter four? They said, they asked this question among themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this Jesus? That's a fitting way for us to think about our text this morning as it's already been read for us. Who then is this? As the disciples continue to have firsthand experience, first-hand witness to the power of Jesus. And in particular, we saw a natural world last week. We see the supernatural world this week. Jesus reigns over the supernatural, indeed, even over the demonic realm. Jesus is in control and reigns. And so we will see a picture of the awesomeness of Jesus. We will also see two very different responses to that. We're going to see some reject. We're also going to see one who says, I want more of this. I want like devotion to you, Jesus. Acceptance. Those are two of the pictures that we're going to see. I'm the kind of guy that likes to just work through the text verse by verse. And so let's just jump in. Mark 5, verse 1. So they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. By the way, this is Jesus and his disciples. So they've crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And now they're in, if you know anything about the region, they're in an area kind of called the, the Decapolis, uh, which is a Gentile region. So Jesus with his disciples in a Gentile region, which he, had, he even acknowledged that he came for the house of Israel. And yet here he is to do some ministry in the Gentiles, because we know also from the New Testament that the gospel spreads into even the Gentile world. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. We'll find out that it's more than just one unclean spirit. This man lived among the tombs. Verse 4 talks about nobody could, could subdue him. They didn't have the strength because he was so strong. Night and day among the tombs on the mountain, he was crying out. He was cutting himself with stones. So this is a picture of a man who is really, really desperately in a place of darkness. He's just consumed with darkness. That's what, that's what Jesus sees. What do the disciples see? So remember, they've just crossed over with Jesus. They're stepping out. They're in Gentile territory, which Jews didn't really want to be around Gentiles very much. By the way, the, the word unclean spirit, there's a whole bunch of unclean that's going on here if you, if you pay attention to what that means. There's tombs, and to a Jew, you don't spend a lot of time around tombs because that makes you ceremonially unclean. Dead people, dead things, you don't touch. We know because of the text that there are pigs in the area, and pigs are a no-go. No-go for Jews. They, they don't raise pigs. They don't eat pigs. They don't touch pigs. So we've got pigs. We've got tombs. We've got Gentiles. We've got a crazy man with a demonic spirit, which is called unclean. And so if you're with Jesus as a disciple, your alarm bells are going off and it's like, Jesus, we got to get out of here. We're going to be unclean. I got to be a good Jew and I can't be here. I can't engage this. And they're like, we got to get out of here. Can't you imagine feeling that if you're with him? But what about Jesus? What does he see? He sees a man made in the image of God. One who he has created, who is desperately in need, who is experiencing the destructive power of the devil. Jesus talks about the devil in other places. John 8, he describes the devil as a murderer and a liar. A murderer is one who takes life, right? Who, who takes life. Steal, kill, destroy. That's a murderer. And from the very beginning, the devil has been a liar. He's always manipulating words and twisting and confusing and half-truths, which are actually lies. And so from the very beginning, Jesus has called the devil a murderer and a liar. That's what he's been up to. And isn't that a picture of what he's done in this guy's life? He has just taken so much from this man. Spiritually, this man is in bondage. There are these unclean spirits inside of him that are just controlling him. He is in darkness. Look at it relationally. He is just relationally ruined. He's a loner. He lives apart from his family and his friends, apart from the community. Everyone else would live in town, and he's living where? Among the tombs. Nobody lives among the tombs. He's relationally cut off. He's mentally not well. He's screaming. He's, he's not okay. He's physically a harm to himself. He's cutting himself. He's, he's a harm to other people. They tried to subdue him so that he wouldn't harm people. It's as if he is dead, though he is still very much alive. He's living in a place of the dead. And he sees Jesus... Now, it's hard to know. Who is Mark talking about here? Is this the man or is this the demon? Well, I, I, I would suggest to you that, that this conversation that ensues is a conversation between Jesus and the demon. And so the man in verse 6, he sees Jesus from afar. He runs down and he falls before him. 
Now, I think that he was challenging, that the demon was, was coming to challenge kind of this attack Jesus. And one commentator said, it's just amazing. It's amazing that he, he comes to attack, he comes to challenge, but he ends up in a heap of submission before Jesus. I mean, that is the power and the authority of Jesus, right? That a demon can't come and attack, but he's just going to submit to him. He's going to be on his hands and knees before him. And look at this conversation. This conversation between Jesus and the demon is a battle for this man's soul. Jesus knows the full reality of what's at stake. His disciples see like this crazed man. They've, they've encountered demons before. But there is a battle for the man's soul as Jesus is fully in control of this conversation, but has a, has a conversation with him. And the demon, note what the demon says. He says, what are you doing here, basically? What, what do you have to do with me? Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Please don't torment me. So let me, let me unpack a little bit, because there's some very interesting things uh, and insightful things to see in the way that the demon rightfully identifies Jesus. The Son of the Most High God. Now that is a term, when you see it in the Gospels, it usually is a term a title that's used by the demonic world to identify Jesus. Because if you think about it, demons are fallen angels. So at one time they had been angels and they followed the devil who at one time had been a very lofty, prominent angel. But unfortunately, he wanted to be the most high. And because of his sin, because of his pride, he was cast out of heaven and he took a number of angels with him that are now serving in the power of darkness as demons. And so these demons, right, they rightly know who is the Most High, who's not the Most High, and who is with the Most High. And so they know that their Lord is not the Most High, even though that's what he wanted. They know that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And so that title, that, that identification of him is fascinating to see whenever the demons rightfully acknowledge who he is, even before humans are able to do that. And then the demon says, what, what are you, what are you, why are you interfering with me? Don't torment me. So what, what does that mean? Well, the devil knows what's coming for him. In Matthew 25, Jesus references an eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his forces. So that's coming. So the, the demons know at some point, they're going to they're gonna get their backsides handed to them, right? They're, they're going to end up in torment eternally locked away in, in other places it's called the abyss. They know that that's what's coming for them. And they're panicked because they don't want to stop their activity right now. That's why they're like, Jesus, please, please don't send us away. Don't send us from this place. Don't, don't, don't send us to the abyss before it's time yet. And it's interesting. Jesus seems to be willing to negotiate a little bit with them. We know in this world that we live in, we may not see the demonic quite as, as much as uh, I've got friends who serve in Africa, have grown up in Africa or other places in the developing world, and they tend to see that a little bit more than we do because we're so enlightened here in the West. And I think Satan has just lulled us to sleep with all of our intellect that we oftentimes don't get to see some of the supernatural darkness in our world. And so... 
Jesus knows that some measure of permission has been given to the demonic world to wreak havoc until all things are put to an end. And we studied that in our Revelation series some months ago of what's coming. And so they, they beg and they say, can, can you please not send us to the abyss until the time has come? Please don't torment us. They're panicked. And Jesus gives permission. Verse 10. They begged him earnestly not to send them out. They see a great herd of pigs there on the hillside. They beg in verse 12, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And Jesus gives permission. And indeed, the unclean spirits leave the man and go into the pigs. This number of 2,000. I mean, it's a a big herd. That's huge. 2,000 pigs rush down the steep bank into the sea and are drowned. Wow. Again, imagine you're a disciple. You're standing there. This crazed man is on his knees before Jesus. They're having this conversation. At some point, they both look over. Hey, there's pigs over there. There's a question. He says, go. And all of a sudden, there's commotion over here. As 2,000 pigs, I I would imagine squealing and all this chaos and and activity over here, careen off of the hillside, are in the water. By the way, pigs don't swim super well. Struggling, all this, I mean, think of it. All the splashing from 2,000 pigs and the squealing and all this noise, all this commotion, and then they start drowning. And you say, Wow, what just happened? What just happened? Well, Jesus spared this man. He removed his uncleanness because all of a sudden the demons left, the unclean spirits left this man and went into the pigs. Ironically, it seems, I mean, we don't know everything, but it seems that Jesus gave in to the demons, their, their request, right, was to go to the pigs because they didn't want to go to the abyss yet. And yet it seems like that's where they ended up, that they, they are with the pigs who go off the cliff, who die. By the way, in the, in the New Testament, in Jewish literature, the sea is a place of evil, darkness, chaos. It is a picture of the sea that will be no more someday in the new heaven and in the new earth. And it seems like that's where they ended up. Jesus acquiesced to their request. And ironically, they end up in the abyss. Now, don't feel badly for the pigs. You may love bacon. You may love ribs. You may see this as a sad, as a sad thing for those poor piggies. But let me tell you, one commentator has written that the losses here must be seen as casualties in the war being waged between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. While God is out to save, Satan is bent on destruction. And in this battle scene, Jesus delivers the man from oppression while the demons destroy the pigs. They're all about destruction. And he let them have their way. And Jesus, by the way, had asked a question of the demons. We we jumped over it. He asked his name Legion, which in in, uh, a Roman military world would be 6,000 troops. That's a lot of troops. We don't know if that's how many demons were in it, but imagine the deliverance that Jesus extended to this man. 
I mean, multiple, multiple demons inside of him. So dark. So dark. One man's life is worth many pigs. Jesus saw the the humanity of this man. He cleaned him. He removed the unclean spirits. And then he spares him. He spares him from all of this darkness. He was so oppressed. He was so in a bad place and he transformed him in an instant. Jesus is a rescuer. That's the type of work he does. You may not have a story like this. That's pretty, pretty amazing. But no matter what your story is, Jesus delivers, he rescues us and he does it in a big way, in a really, really big way. By the way, we're told nothing about the disciples here, right? They just get to observe the transformation of Jesus. You ever get to see that at work in someone's life? It's amazing when you see someone's life transformed. Anybody familiar with Rosaria Butterfield? She's an author, a Christian author, written a number of books. Her husband's a pastor. And Rosaria Butterfield um, has talked about her conversion which was a bit of a train wreck, she would admit. She was an outspoken professor at Syracuse University. She was lesbian, liberal, feminist. I mean, you fill in whatever label, and she, she would admit that she, she fits that. And she encountered a local pastor who just asked some questions of her to maybe challenge some of her beliefs, to help her to help her to raise some, some questions where she was so dogmatic about some things and he engaged her in conversation, not in conversion. He didn't start with the tact of let's, let's, let's convert this lady, but let's engage in conversation. And Rosaria writes this about her conversion. She said, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I didn't ask for this. I counted the costs and I didn't like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world, and Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. Think about what this man had experienced. All of this separation from relationship, all that physically had happened to him, and Jesus rescued him. Amen. Jesus saves, and he sets people free, and he restores their humanity. Verse 15, we have this great picture of what a restored man looks like. He's clothed and in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a picture of a disciple. That's a picture of someone who would be sitting at the feet of a rabbi saying, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to assume the posture of of a disciple. And here he is. And, and look at what the townspeople see because the herdsmen who are responsible for these pigs see all this chaos. They run off to the town. They bring people back so that they can see what happened and they see him there. They knew who this guy was and they knew that there used to be 2,000 pigs that are now floating in the Sea of Galilee and what happens to them? Fear. They're afraid. It's too much for them to handle. You know, there's a theme that, that, there, that has been woven through the last couple of stories here in the Gospel of Mark. The theme of fear. You remember the disciples in the boat, they're afraid because the waves are coming over. And then that kind of fear gives way to 
fear of like, who is this Jesus? If even the, the storm will obey him. But you have the crowd here that is afraid. They're afraid of Jesus. It feels too much for them, too much out of their control, too much to ask of them. What if, what if more happens to, to other flocks that we have? What if it costs us? Boy, Jesus' transformation can be costly. I, I have to be honest with you. Jesus' promise isn't to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. Jesus promises to set us free. And that's a beautiful thing, but it is costly. Look at Rosaria Butterfield's life. She fought with everything she had. She had to give up the life that she had, the partner that she had, the platform that she had, all of that. I did not want to lose, she writes, everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. She was rescued, and it was costly. Jesus brings about revolution and change. He's in it for the heart to be changed. And when he changes, it's changed in a big way, as we've seen this man sitting here clothed in his right mind, restored in his humanity, ready to listen. But the crowd? No. Rejection. Rejection, Jesus. It's too much. We need you to leave. And Jesus consents. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus isn't going to stick around where he's not wanted. That's not his, that's not how he works. If I'm not wanted here, I'm going to move on. He taught his disciples that as well. In Acts, we're reminded that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's a, a willingness. Jesus is willing. If we are willing, Jesus is willing. If we reject, Jesus moves on. That's a, that's a frightful and, and honest thing to have to face. You have, a, you have a response of worship from the disciples, a response of devotion and dedication from, from this man whose life was changed, but the townspeople, get out. It's too scary. And so Jesus consents. He leaves. But before he leaves... That man, the former demoniac, says, can I go with you? He begs him, take me with you. By the way, there's a lot of begging in this passage. That was one of the things I realized this week. You look at how many times the verb beg or begged comes up. There's a lot of times in this passage. You have the, the demon who began to beg that Jesus would not send them out of the country. But then, in his panic, the demon begged, why don't you just send us to the pigs? And then you have the townspeople who are begging, Jesus, we need you to leave. This is too scary. And then you have the disciple who is begging, can't I go with you? Now, if you beg, that, that demonstrates some type of a who's in charge, right? My kids beg me to go to ice cream. I don't beg my kids to go to, to Dairy King, right? I, I'm not going to beg my kids, will you take me to Dairy King? No, because I'm the one with the vehicle. I'm the one with the money. And so they beg me for certain things because they perceive that I have some measure of authority. And even here in the text, all of these different instances of begging are just preaching that Jesus is the one with authority, right? That he's the one who actually is in control. And you have to feel for this guy, 
this guy who has changed. He wanted to go with Jesus. He's basically saying, I want more of that. You just changed my life in such a massive way. I want more of that. I would feel that way. But Jesus doesn't permit him. That's a little hard for me. You know, I, I read that and I say, oh, that's, that's disappointing. You know what? He, he potentially was a little disappointed. But when we follow Jesus, it means we follow Jesus' way. We don't get to make this up on the fly, on our own. We follow what Jesus has. And what does Jesus have for him? He commissioned him for ministry. So he transformed his life and then he commissioned him for ministry. And he does the same for us. He had a new identity. What did Jesus say? He, here's what it is. Here's your audience. Here's your mission. Here's, here's your location. Go home to your friends. So start with the people who know you. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. Tell your story. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you know what? A lot of these people knew who he was. He was the crazy guy that lives out in the cemetery. I'm afraid of him. I keep my kids from him. I mean, he was known in that area. And so Jesus is saying, go and tell them what the Lord has done. They would have seen some life change. Tell the Lord's mercy. This is your mission. This is your new identity. And you know what? He might have been disappointed, but he was faithful. He was faithful. How do we know that? In Matthew 8, that's the parallel passage. So where Matthew is writing about this in Matthew 8, we, we proceed into Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, verse 34, again, Jesus and his disciples had crossed over the Sea of Galilee and they come to the same area. And 35 says of Matthew 14, and when the men of that place recognized him, that being Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick so that they would be healed. And so Jesus didn't allow this gentleman to go with him, even though that would have been pretty great for this guy. But he said, you know what? You're a young convert who's ready to tell your story. And this guy was faithful. He did. He stayed put. I believe he had a faithful ministry there so that when Jesus came back, people are like, oh, we know this guy. This is the pig guy, but he also is the guy who heals. So like, let's, let's get our sick. Let's get our people who really need help. They know, they know Jesus because of the testimony of this man. That's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture of us as disciples. When Jesus removes our uncleanness, he takes away our sin. He restores our humanity so that we are, we are disciples. We recognize our position, our identity in Christ as image bearers, ready to then be commissioned for ministry because that's what the master, King Jesus, has asked us to do. And he went away. Verse 20, he began to proclaim. He was faithful. Everyone marveled. That's the work of Jesus in this man's life. That's the work that Jesus continues on repeat, on repeat. Maybe you have heard some stories in your life of some pretty strange projects and uncompromising material that get used for God's glory. I was reminded this week of John Newton. He's a pretty wretched guy who lived back in the 1700s. Maybe you know a little bit about his story, but John Newton was born in 1725 in London. His mom died when he was young. His father abandoned him. 
He was kidnapped and forced to serve in the British Royal Navy. He didn't want to. He tried committing suicide. He tried to desert the, the military service, and he was captured and beaten, and so he finally gave in. And over the course of time, he began to work for an, on a slave ship. And his job was to go and to capture African men and women and take them abroad and force them into slavery. And eventually, he was so good at it that he, he got his own ship. And he was his own master. He was a slave master. He was the one responsible for this. Now, John Newton had heard of Jesus a time or two in his life. He had been faced with that. But it wasn't, nah, it's not for me. I don't want any of that. Until there was a, a voyage that he was on. He's on the ocean. He became deathly ill. Deathly ill. And as he felt his life slipping away, he asked God to show mercy. He asked him to save him. And God did on that very ship. And over the course of time, as the years went on, he was feeling guilty about his occupation. And he said, I got to be done with this. He quit his slave trading days. And he wanted to become a pastor, but the Church of England wouldn't let him because he wasn't equipped. He wasn't, he wasn't educated. And so he, inv he invested himself to learn and to be faithful. And at God's good grace, at age 39, he became a pastor. And he pastored faithfully until he was age 82 when he died. That's a good, that's a good ministry run. It's a story of transformation. And as he remembered that night when Jesus saved him, and he reflected on God's mercy and grace, he wrote a song that has blessed the church for centuries called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the power of Jesus in a story like John Newton, in a story like the demoniac, but also maybe in your story, or maybe soon to be in your story. Because I don't know where you are on your journey with Jesus. If you're exploring who is this one? Who is Jesus? You're curious about him. I hope, I hope you don't dismiss him like the crowd did that said, no, it's too risky. I can't have that. I got I to gotta keep some measure of control in my life. <laughs> That's actually a joke. We don't have control, do we? Hear the good news of the gospel being preached this morning and don't let it fall on bad soil, on hard soil that we remember from Mark chapter 4. Jesus is in the business of transforming lives. He saves. Have you experienced that? What's your, what's your posture toward him? Are you begging him? What are you begging him for? What is it in your life that you say, oh God, you are the one who is actually in control. You are reigning. Your kingdom is. Are you, are you able to use me, God? If you have experienced the grace of God, have you been putting that to work? I don't mean to, that you've got to work your salvation so that you get to heaven. But Jesus expects his disciples to work in some way for the kingdom. In some way for the kingdom. Where you work, where you live, where you play. You have a unique story of grace. Do you know that? 
I can't help but wonder if this guy felt some shame. He knows what his life used to look like. And yet, Jesus said, tell your story. And so the call for us is to tell our story. I used to be this way. And now I'm different because of Jesus. Jesus changed my life. What could that seed of the gospel that we studied some weeks ago, what could that seed of the gospel produce because of your faithfulness and how you work for the gospel? So who then is this? The disciples asked the question, who then is this? Let me tell you, he is rescuer. He is savior. He is all-powerful king. And he invites us to be part of his kingdom and to work for his kingdom. So let us be faithful disciples in that work. Jesus, we are thankful that you saved us. We are thankful for the truth that is in you, that you change our lives. You give us stories that are meant to be used for your glory and are meant to be helpful to other people on their journey of faith and understanding who you are. So help us. Help us from the life of this guy in the Decapolis who experienced such a radical change of life. Thank you, Jesus, that you have power. You reign over the demonic realm. You reign over all creation. We want to worship you and see you for who you are, and we want more of that, please. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close with a song? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.